This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. As the United States now faces a major defeat in its occupation of Iraq, the history of the Vietnam War as a historic blunder for U.S. military forces abroad and the true story of how it was stopped takes on a fresh importance. In his new book, Vietnam, The Last War the U.S. Lost, our guest today, Joe Allen, examines the lessons of that era with the eyes of both a dedicated historian and an engaged participant in today's anti-war movement. Allen is a regular contributor to the International Socialist Review and a long-standing social justice fighter involved in the ongoing struggles for labor, the abolition of the death penalty, and to free political prisoner Gary Tyler. Joe Allen, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hi, Nathan. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? Well, uh, it's 10 degrees and snowy in Chicago, so I think you guys are doing better out there. Yeah, yeah. Even <laughs> even though it's uh, it was rainy here, you know, we were we were scurrying oh, about. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, <laughs> we had we had our cold snap. It was about 42 degrees last yeah. day. Do you believe that, Joe? Oh Is my that, God! Yeah, you I know. Get out of sweater. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. Well. There's plenty of parallels between Iraq and Vietnam, and I've got to tell you, you're on you're on friendly turf here. Mike and I were 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 seeing that from the beginning when we were starting to edge into Iraq. We were saying, "Oh my God, not another quagmire!" But uh, tell us, uh, first of all, tell us a little bit. How, how did we get involved in Vietnam? How did we get involved in that quagmire? Well, I think there's there's a couple of things, guys, about to understand uh, why the U.S. became involved in Vietnam and then why it produced such a, a huge anti-war movement in this country, and I think they're related. Uh-huh. I think you have to look at uh, three things. One is the emergence of the United States after the Second World War as really a global empire. And while that was a, a phrase that for many decades wasn't popular, I think it's recognized by, you know, Many people allow that the United States is uh, both an economic and a military empire around the world. After all, what other country has hundreds of military bases in other people's countries? Um, all that took place, and you know, in its beginning, but really, you know, uh, took uh, shape after the Second World War, and uh, you know, with all the institutions that we know and love—the creation of the CIA, worldwide military alliances, the global, you know, the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency and things like that. The second is the uh, the Vietnamese national struggle, where the Vietnamese had been fighting for, you know, many years uh, against different foreign oppressors, whether it be the Chinese or the French, uh, to free their country from foreign domination. And uh, like many countries, after the Second World War, they declared their independence from their former colonial masters, the French, and actually expected the United States to help them in that struggle for independence and was betrayed when the United States supported the French recolonizing uh, Vietnam. And Vietnam took on more of an importance because, uh, in the eyes of the United States because there were many countries like that in the world, except by the early 1960s it became very clear that the puppet government that the United States had created illegally in South Vietnam was on the edge of collapse because of the nationalist movement to get, a rid of, to get rid of it and to unify the country. And then really the third element in all of this is really the, 
civil rights and black power movement in the United States, which uh, broke the deadening hand of McCarthyism in the 1950s and allowed for uh, the reemergence of mass political struggle and the identification of many Americans uh, with the Vietnamese for uh, freedom and independence. So if you look at really all three of those factors, the United States as a global empire, Vietnam taking on an, an important political importance for U.S. power and credibility in the world, and then a mass movement for freedom and democracy in this country, I think you get some idea of what the whole era of Vietnam really meant uh, in the United States. Now, did the U.S. realize the risk it was getting into when it first uh, took over, when it first, uh, you know, when the French were out and the U.S., were, uh, Vietnam came to us for help? Well, I think, I think that the United States, well, you know, the, the best history of this stuff is to always look at the Pentagon Papers, uh -huh. which is referred to as always as the sort of secret history of the Vietnam War. And some of it was secret, but some of it was also known. But there's what the government tells you and what it tells itself. And, of course, for the one thing when you read about the, the Pentagon Papers or other personal papers of major figures is that they all knew that when they were getting involved in uh, Vietnam, first to support the French and recolonizing the country and then uh, cutting the country in half and creating a, a loyal, corrupt, pro-U.S. dictatorship in the South, was that they all understood that their allies were weak, that the regimes were unpopular, that Ho Chi Minh and his Viet Minh were very popular throughout the country. I mean, after all, most Vietnamese people only viewed Vietnam as one country. It's the Americans who view it as two. Mm. But they thought in their arrogance that they could simply use their economic and military power and simply grind the Vietnamese national movement down, and ultimately that failed. Well, I want to go back because I, I do want to get to the sort of the basics of this because uh, there's a you just described a pattern that goes back. We've uh, done a number of shows on the Middle East and mm -hmm. the British and the French sort of uh, dividing up the Middle East, and we're seeing the consequences of these sort of artificial lines that have been drawn today mm -hmm. with Iraq and Afghanistan, and there's so many countries in the in the Middle East and South sure. Asian continent that that reflect this desire on the part of the colonial powers to divide yep. it and conquer it, and originally. The, the uh, when the French came in in the eighteenth uh, nineteenth century, mm -hmm. they divided it into three different uh, uh, areas, and then the United States tried, or in some way, to divide it into two areas. So uh, this unnatural, this force forcing these countries into these unnatural situations, is really one of the root causes of this rebellion, this this desire on the part of these people to be independent. Well, that's true, and of course, remember the formal position of the United States since uh, since the First World War is the United States stands for the self-determination of nations, right. which is, of course, a huge contradiction, which is one of the reasons why many Americans have come to oppose these type of wars, because most Americans don't support colonialism. They believe that their country should support freedom and democracy around the world, and one of the reasons why these wars have produced such opposition is the gap between the rhetoric of the government right. and how most Americans view what their government should be doing usually becomes this sort of, you know, Grand Canyon of, of a divide, which usually leads to, you know, in the case of the 60s, a massive act of anti-war movement. And in the case of this decade, it led to, you know, large-scale opposition to, uh, to the American role, mostly in Iraq, and a great wariness about uh, events in Afghanistan. Well, I want to. I just want to go back. The United States. When it. When did it first become a participant in the in the in determining the future of Vietnam? Well, in a way that most it would surprise most Americans. During the Second World War, 
the United States was actually allies with Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh in uh, in Vietnam. Uh, they uh, both were allied against the Japanese, which had taken over a considerable se- section of the Pacific uh, and Asian countries during the uh, early stages of the Second World War. And the French in Vietnam, like the French uh, military and uh, business people in France, collaborated with the Japanese uh, occupation of Vietnam. And so the Viet Minh, which was led by Ho Chi Minh, who was seen by you know most Vietnamese uh, then and now was sort of uh, the equivalent of a George Washington-type figure, the, the sort of founder of the modern movement for Vietnamese independence, um, returned to Vietnam in 1939, formed a broad organization to both reform the inequities of uh, the colonial society and to expel the French and the Japanese in the United States uh, through the OSS, which was the predecessor organization to the CIA, provided men, money, and training uh, to the uh, to the Viet Minh. Uh, in 1945, when Japanese power was collapsing throughout the Pacific, uh, the Viet Minh began a process of expelling uh, the, uh, the Japanese and their French collaborators throughout most of, uh, uh, of Vietnam. And in September of that year, after the Japanese surrender, uh, Ho Chi Minh, in front of a crowd of 200,000 people in Hanoi, declared uh, Vietnamese independence, and he basically paraphrased uh, uh, the American Declaration of Independence. In fact, he showed the speech to the OSS before he gave it, uh, and they played the, star, they played the Stars and Stripes before uh, uh, the, uh, the Star Spangled Banner at the ceremony where he declared uh, Vietnam independent from, uh, from, Fran- from France. Of course, that's a history that's not taught in most American schools and, of course, is not in any of the Rambo films. Yeah. Yeah, so. that, that's, that's a huge difference, too, and as you point out in the book, the difference between the mythology about Vietnam and, and what actually did happen there. Uh, do you have another question, Mike? First of all, I'd like to say we're speaking with Joe Allen. The book is Vietnam, The Last War the U.S. Lost. So, so this is in 19... If my recollection is correct... Uh, Ho Chi Minh gave this declaration, I'm going to say, 53, 54, somewhere in that? No, that was in 1945. 45? Yeah. Oh, pardon me. I'm, okay. 1945. So now, okay, so, and we have an American general who was kind of his, uh, overseeing that area of, of the world, a general, and I can't think of his name right now, but uh, who reacted. Why Why did the U.S. react in this way? Why did it not embrace the, the, the this uh, obvious attempt on the part of uh, Ho Chi Minh to be one of us, to be like us. Why did we not do that? Well, I think there's a couple of big factors. I mean, obviously, the United States was emerging uh, to really replace Britain primarily and to a secondarily degree uh, France as sort of the guardian of the capitalist world. Uh, The one thing about the Second World War, and again, this is coming to terms of how people are taught history between what is mythology or a narrow view, and what really happened is that the Second World War, of course, was a war in which the major fascist powers were defeated. It was also a war in which colonialism and white supremacy, which really kind of justified it, uh, was uh, was collapsed, essentially. And so after the Second World War, the United States faced uh, both a rival in terms of Russia for dominance, predominantly in Europe, but also faced rebellion and many of the former colonies around the world and wanted to make sure that the people who emerged in these countries were going to be loyal to the United States. Um, of course, Ho Chi Minh had, was the leader of the Vietnamese Communist Party, 
and had very different ideas about national development and so forth, despite what he thought would be the support of the United States uh, in his cause for the independence of Vietnam. And so that's what the, and that's what the, led, that makeup of things led the United States to decide not to support the Vietnamese or just to allow them to run their own country. Imagine that. Uh, but to uh, support the French in recolonizing the country. And so from 1945 until their defeat in 1953 at the, at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, the United States uh, supplied 80% of the, Amer- of the military aid to actually run the French war in Vietnam. Uh, millions were killed, mostly Vietnamese. And in fact, in the last days of the uh, siege of Dien Bien Phu, uh, where the Vietnamese emerged triumph over the French, the United States actually, according to the French foreign minister at the time, the United States offered them two atomic bombs to uh, to stave off defeat in uh, Vietnam. So that's you know that's really the first part of the war that is very much part of how the Vietnamese look at their history. It's also the part of the war that most Americans know absolutely nothing about. Now, would you say this is where we made our, our, our critical a one of the main critical mistakes right there in in not uh, at least trying to embrace. Uh, Vietnam as a, as, as a friend of the United States from the beginning. Well, well, I think that's true. I also just think it's a question of whether it's, it's also a question of very simply whether whether you embrace them as a friend or see them as an enemy. It's whether you believe that countries should have the right to just determine their own futures. Yeah. And um, and I think that for people like us in the United States who want you know want a decent world, that that was uh, is something that we should stand for. That every country that has suffered foreign domination and oppression, has a right to decide its political and economic makeup, and they have the right to decide who they choose to be uh, friends or, or enemies with. That's not a decision that you and I should make. This, this really is an example, maybe a mo- the most egregious example of something that uh, I've come to believe, and that is that almost all, if not all, American foreign policy is a direct result of domestic policy. In other words, that we were in the throes of this McCarthy anti-communist fever, fervor at that time, and it, and it completely uh, blinded us or it dictated our direction in terms of our foreign policy. So no matter what Ho Chi Minh said or did, he was always going to be a communist, and he had to be dealt with in the ways that people were being dealt with that were mm-hmm. communists here in America. And I want to make – I want to jump forward because – Sure. Unfortunately, we run, we're going to run out of time before we get to the, some mm-hmm. of the important things you bring up in your book, which is the connection between American domestic policies and, and politics and its effect on the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and, you, as you described earlier, the civil rights movements and such. So I want to get into how that impacted uh, the, the, what happened in Vietnam. Right. Well, I think, you know, it's important. I mean, McCarthyism certainly didn't help, and I think in some ways – uh, obviously made things worse in terms both domestically and internationally. But I think it's important to keep in mind, guys, that the original commitment uh, of the Americans to the French recolonization and then the launching of one of the, the most violent one of the most violent wars of the 20th century were, were both done by liberal Democrats, by Harry Truman and then by Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. The reason I think that these things, um, uh, it ex- you know, it exploded so much in the 1960s is that People should remember that part of the way that uh, politically thinking people in the 40s, 50s, and 60s looked at the world is that it was a, uh, an era in which, you know, most of humanity was throwing off one form of colonialism or another. And that's really where the term third world comes from. It was the idea that we'll 
carve out a third way between the communist East, as they called it, and the capitalist West. And that's why so many emerging nations called themselves socialist of one kind. Well, also, we, didn't we also have the non-alignment movement? Of no, that's day. exactly, and that's part of it, and that's an important part of it. And so, you know, when the Vietnam War starts, we, you know, uh, for most Americans in 1965 and 1966 with the, really the American invasion of South Vietnam with one of the largest armies the United States ever sent abroad, most people saw the United States attempting to hold up colonialism in a way that most politically thinking Americans were saying, well, this is going against the tide, really, of history. And that's why, really, in some ways, the black power and civil rights movement in this country becomes so important, because many African Americans identified their struggle for freedom and dignity in this country as part of a global struggle for freedom and dignity of the uh, people of color of, the, of this planet. We're speaking with Joe Allen. The book is Vietnam, The Last War the U.S. Lost. And you, you just uh, said something the, uh, that I think is important to understand in the context uh, for people who weren't, uh, didn't live through this era. At one time, how many American troops were committed to this country that is what not much bigger? I can't remember what state. It was like Montana or something. Mm -hmm. It's not much bigger than that. How many American troops were there? Well, at the height of the war, there was about 800,000 troops on the ground in Vietnam. It's staggering. And, that, and that's a staggering number. And, uh, you know, that's about five times, you know, almost five times the number that are, are in Iraq right now. Uh, it's, almost, it's also important to keep in mind that the United States ran the war, uh, particularly its bombing campaign, which was, you know, uh, greeted with hostility internationally off of, you know, the American uh, naval fleet off the coast of Vietnam, and then from a series of bases in Guam and Japan and, and so forth. And so the Americans really, you know, unleashed really this horrible war that to most Americans would be mind-boggling uh, today. I mean, let me just give you one example from my book about, uh, and this is a quote about the, to give people a sense of the, the type of war that the Americans unleashed. Now remember, Vietnam, North and South, is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, and here's something from my book. The B-52, which was originally designed for dropping nuclear weapons on Russia, was refitted for conventional warfare in Vietnam with devastating results. The United States dropped more than one million tons of bombs on North Vietnam and four million tons on the South. Now, remember, the South is the ally of the United States. Stunningly, the amount of bombs dropped by the United States on South Vietnam in the air war alone, that doesn't count artillery, was double the tonnage than all of the Second World War combined. Now, that's just absolutely mind-boggling, that if you think of the, all of the uh, bombs dropped by all of the armies of the Second World War, were dropped by the United States on one of the poorest countries in the world, you get some idea of the type of uh, opposition that developed internationally to what the United States was doing. It's just an incredible number. And, and give us a number, because historians have differed uh, in degrees, but it's generally considered how many Vietnamese died during our the period of time when we were involved in Vietnam? Well, I think it's important to remember that the Vietnamese won't just view it as when the Americans were in Vietnam. The French. You, you know, if you start with the Japanese invasion in 1940 and 41 and, and then go through the, uh, the, the, when the United States was finally left Vietnam in 1975, there's, you know, millions of Vietnamese were, were killed or, or disabled by the Japanese, the French, and the American uh, the American military during uh, that era, and which is, of course, 
one of the reasons why the Vietnamese are very proud of their own history. I mean, there are a few people uh, in the world that can proudly uh, say, we, we have defeated three of the major powers in the world despite the incredible casualties that they inflicted, they inflicted on us. And remember, it's not just simply the formal uh, casualties of bombings and artillery and death in combat, but think of things like um, the use of herbicides yeah. in the countryside, like Agent Orange, which was used for well over a decade by, uh, by the Americans, which was laced with dioxin cancer-causing, which had devastating effects on now two generations of Vietnamese, but also then blew back uh, in terms of its effects on American soldiers. For example, my uncle who fought in Vietnam in the Marine Corps would later die from cancer caused by his exposure to Asian Orange. Well, I just, because the, uh, it's a number that's been, I've been bandied around. I've heard that the number is about 4 million. I would, 4 million casualties, I think that's probably accurate. I think... Uh, in a country, as I remember, if, if memory serves me, is around, was around 17 or 18 million people. Well, it, if you combine the, the population of both North and South Vietnam, it comes to around 50 million during that era. Uh, okay, um, okay, then I'm just, but still, it's a... <laughs> No, it's staggering. I mean, it's staggering. I mean, you know, I mean, people, you know, the United States and people who grow up think of things like World War One leading to horror in trench warfare, leading to the decimation of a whole generation of uh, of French and British. But uh, there's never the same discussion about the impact of the war on uh, on the uh, on the Vietnamese in the same in the same way. In fact, the Americans com- completely understood what they were uh, doing with this stuff. Their bombing campaign, in particular, was you know was referred to by Westmoreland as a war of attrition. But the guys at the Pentagon had a pithier uh, description of it. They called it the meat grinder. Very simply, we will kill off. So many of uh, young men and women that uh, future generations of Vietnamese uh, will uh, will virtually uh, be, cri- be, cri- be crippled, and this was really part of the American war strategy. I, w- I want to ask you a theoretical question that has to do with us and Vietnam together. Mm-hmm. What do you think it says about American culture, political culture today, that uh, when uh, that we don't know these basic uh, facts about Vietnam? If you were to ask a uh, hundred Americans, I doubt that more than two or three would have any idea mm-hmm. how many people died in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. What do you think that says about us as a culture? What if you said that the, to the a German after World War II and asked them how many people died in concentration camps, and, mm-hmm. and they had no idea? Mm-hmm. What, what would you think of the Germans, and what do you think oh, of us? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the Americans are very good at wagging their figure finger at, uh, you know right-wing Germans or Japanese government officials who come out and say insensitive or absolutely horrible things about the Second World War, but there's never the same thing about Vietnam. And, of course, the importance of that is, you know, two things. One, the Americans, you know, emerged as the, you know, the winner of the Second World War, and therefore they they claim this moral high ground, which, you know, is, is part of how they justify what they do in the world, right? Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is that, remember, culture is never independent of the major institutions of any society. So, you know, the people who run this country, the major corporations, the think tanks, and the government, very quickly after the Vietnam War was over, kicked in a direction of really remaking the Vietnam War so that they could justify being an interventionist power again. You know, and that's why, with a handful of exceptions, most Hollywood films about Vietnam are absolutely terrible. Uh, If you go and speak on college campuses like I do uh, on my book on Vietnam, you will find that with, you know, maybe there's one course on the Vietnam War, 
and that there's just a sort of general state and corporate-sponsored ignorance about, about all of it. And what people think they know is almost usually wrong or very distorted. Mm. And that's part of the importance of building political movements, because we have to develop our own culture and our own media and our own books uh, to tell people the real history as opposed to the sort of distorted or phony history of these uh, important historical events. Before we let you go, do you think that there is uh, hope that we will be able to turn around our education system and we will be able to look into the past and, and learn more about correcting our mistakes so we don't keep making them over and over again? Well, that's, yeah, I think that's true. I, I think we have to take a page out of the 60s and 70s about this, is that in the 60s and 70s, one of the things that, you know, that took place on campuses is, you know, black students, women students, uh, radical political activists said that we need to create ethnic studies departments and teach real black history or real Latino history. We have to teach the real history of working people in this country. We have to teach the real history of American foreign policy. And education that's going to be truthful and honest and activist-oriented is only going to be one that people also fight for. So that's one of the things I think that's back on the agenda. If you're on a college campus where they don't teach any courses on Vietnam or it's one section every three years, I would uh, say it's time to get out there and uh, have a sit-in and uh, demand that more courses be taught on Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. The book is Vietnam, The Last War the, the United States Lost, the author Joe Allen. Joe Allen, thank you so much for being here thank with us guys. today on Weekly Signals. Thank you. Call us anytime. All right. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.